0: You're listening to Reach, Teach, Talk with Nat ding Welcome to another episode of Reach, Teach, Talk. I am beyond thrilled today, and I think that you are all in for a really unique and wonderful and immersive experience as we talk about the art of possibility. This idea that possibility is something that is broadening. It is a combination of hope and a relentless reminder. That there is more around us than our cognitive selves believe. Possibility involves the heart. Um, you, you've heard me say many times in this podcast that learning is cognitive and emotional and social. And I'm brought back to when I was early, early teaching. I was teaching a seventh grade English class. Um, gosh, over 25 years ago now. And I remember we were leaving the classroom, and a student stopped and she said, "You know, Mr. Damon, this class." The way you run this class is different than what I've been used to. You know, I've been used to a classroom being very much like the teacher is uh, right in the front of the room, and the desks are in rows, and you know, teacher has the answer, and we have the questions. Yet, this reminds me. I was at I was at the symphony a couple nights ago with my parents, and this reminds me more like the classroom is like an orchestra. And I was mm. like Jane, what do you mean by that? T- tell me. And she said, because you you instead of just asking questions or giving the answers, I feel like you create an energy that allows us the 13 year old students here to develop our own relationship with each other, to develop our own energy. And it feels very positive and it feels very different. And that's always stuck with me because um, not just because I took the piano for seven years back when I was a kid. And because I'm a, I'm a singer, I love to sing uh 10 or two. Um, but also because there's something, there is a musicality to the classroom and to the relational classroom. There is, you know, we, we clearly strive for harmony and discord arises often. And we know as relational teachers that it's not about confronting the discord. It's about trying to find ways to insert ourselves harmoniously um, to, to engage, to lean in, to connect with our students always. And I, I, I remember I tucked away that memory for a few years and the memory came out, this memory of Jane came out to me in full relief when I picked up this book, The Art of Possibility by Rosamund Zander and Ben Zander. And this book spoke to me in, in such a deep way because it reinforced what I intuitively sensed from Jane's comment. That there is musicality to the classroom. There is a cognitive and emotional um, realm that we enter as teachers that goes beyond just the four walls of our classrooms. It is something that is a truly a spiritual connection. So that was years ago that I read The Art of Possibility. It was back for me back in 2007, although the book was published, first published in 2000. I am just so touched and honored that Ben Zander is with us today and has agreed to be on this podcast. And in fact, he is, for those who are listening, he is sitting at his piano. So we might even have some special, special musicality, some little morsels of of musical influence on this conversation as we move forward to talk about the art of possibility and to hear from Ben about his experience as conductor of the Boston Philharmonic as a, as an incredibly uh, gifted teacher, as one can imagine, if you've read the art of possibility, you'll, you'll certainly believe that to be the case. And also, as somebody who has worked with um, people from all different professions in in the guise of leadership. The idea of, you know, being a leader and a leader who who is able to communicate that there is possibility around us far beyond what we cognitively discern ourselves. So, without much further ado, Ben, welcome. I'm thrilled to have you on Reach Teach Talk.
1: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be involved in this conversation. And it doesn't matter where you enter it. We could enter it with Jane. Jane said your classroom felt more like an orchestra than a traditional classroom. And that's one aspect of an orchestra, which is that everybody has their own voice. Everybody has their part to play, and they have to make them work together. The thing that she didn't fully explore was, but what is the role of the conductor? Because actually an orchestra can't function without a conductor. So she was not referring to a free for all where everybody was sounding off on their own. No, not at all. She had a sense that it was a highly directed process leading towards knowledge, towards understanding, towards love, towards interaction, all those things that we care about so much. And the conductor is crucial. Now the conductor interestingly enough, although he's a figure of fun, and, and, uh, and opprobrium, because he's on a post, he's on a, he's the, the absolute epitome of the, of the dominating figure, you know, the, of the traditional downward spiral. I mean, the the top-down leader uh, stands on a podium and everybody has to obey what he has to say. But, of course, what you were doing in your classroom when Jane was responding was she felt empowered by your role, not diminished by it. Now, interestingly enough, traditionally, orchestra players have felt very diminished. And at one point when they did a study of... Um, different professions, I think it was, they they looked at 28 different professions. And at Harvard, it was at the Harvard Business School study in the 90s. And they discovered somewhat to their horror that orchestra, job satisfaction, orchestra players came just below prison guards. And that's a fascinating thing, because you'd think people go into music because they love it. But being dominated in that hierarchical model, which pervades the orchestral scene, but also the classroom, is actually a diminishing experience. And what Jane felt and why you came to talk about that first in, in when we started this conversation, The Art of Possibility, Jane came up because she said, I felt liberated in your classroom. And that was because you are a conductor. I mean, I haven't seen you teach, but I know how you teach, which is you're interested in the growth and development and the full expression of your students. You're not interested in domination, in being right, in making people follow the instructions. But that is the old model of leadership: uh, top-down, hierarchical, and male. All right, right thinking also. So what we're talking about in the art of possibility and in this conversation is actually a totally different kind of leadership. And it came to me very powerfully one day. I mean, it was a kind of a road to Damascus event for me when I suddenly realized that powerful, though the conductor is, he actually doesn't make a sound. So the sound is made by the players. And that was a huge revelation for me because it took away the attention on me and on my success and on the critics and all the things that people worry about. And the only thing that became interesting was, was I, in effect, enabling the players to be the most expressive, the most effective, the most spontaneous, the most expressed that they possibly could be. In other words, the job of the conductor is to awaken possibility in other people. And when I realized that, and you might say, but that's, isn't that obvious? Well, yes, but unfortunately, we forget it, we leaders. And so when that happened to me, it actually transformed the entire experience of being a conductor and being a leader and a teacher and a parent and everything else. Because the only question is, am I enabling the people who I'm leading to be as fully expressed as possible. And the way we know if that's happening is their eyes are shining. And so I got to read very cleverly. I could tell by looking at people's eyes, whether they were in fact uh, being expressed, being uh, fulfilled. And the funny thing is that, I got both very adept at it, at knowing just by looking. But the other thing that I learned and realized was that if, it, if they were not shining, if the eyes were not shining, I could ask myself a question. Who am I being that my players eyes are not shining? Instead of blaming them, which is the natural instinct, if people don't do what you want them to do, you blame them. Right? You find fault in them or you punish them or whatever. But I, I realized that wasn't going to get me anywhere. So I asked myself the question, who am I being that the eyes were not shining? So then came the next step in this process, which is how would you find out the answers you ask them. <laughs> and the only way of asking an orchestra to respond because they can't all talk in the rehearsal. It would be chaos. I simply slipped a piece of paper onto the stand of every musician in every single rehearsal that I conducted. And it was true of my youth orchestra, where the youngest are 12, or in the Philharmonia in London or the Israel Philharmonic in, in in Tel Aviv, didn't matter what stage they were at, they had the opportunity to write on a white sheet of paper anything that they found would stand in the way of their effectiveness or would improve the venture in some way. And the white sheet, as it came to be called, was the emblem of this new relationship, that my job was to awaken possibility in them, not to force them to do what I wanted them to do. And so that became then a model of leadership, which I which is now in the Art of Possibility and the talks that I give and the demonstrations and most importantly in my teaching and my conducting. And I'm very rigorous about keeping to that. I break down every possible hierarchical wall. So to give the players the feeling that this is their playing. It's their concert. It's their expressiveness that is going to tell on the ears of the audience. And of course, it changes their relationship because now they know that if there's something that they're not feeling completely happy about, let's say there's a phrase and they want to, let's say something like this. If they want, if the brass, if they want to take a little time there, but I'm going... And going straight through. They now can write on their page and say, Ben, would you take a little time before the G? Or the clarinet might say, if you move it a little bit faster in this place, I could do it all in one breath. Or whatever it is. Or sometimes they just write about how beautiful the music is. Or something that I'm doing in my conducting that is not aiding them to play play the best they can. It's a wonderful switching transformation. I call that a transformation of the normal relationship of the hierarchical leader who's up above. Rather it, it reduces, the, we, we become eye to eye working together to produce the best possible result. And the most kind of charming um, and hilarious uh, and valuable Outcome of this was one day, I came home from class, and I said to my partner Roz, um, who's a psychologist, and she's a brilliant psychotherapist, and so she she always looks through the, through the glass of the psych, psychologist, to see that this, uh, psychotherapy is about enabling people to move to the next stage. Essentially, it's just opening the next door. Breaking down the barrier, whatever it is, and she's very, very clever at noticing what it is that's stopping people from getting to the next stage, and then pushing them through. And of course, it's the same job I have in music. And I came home in despair and said, the, "the young musicians I was teaching, and these were graduate students. They're not. They're not children. They're young professionals at the New England Conservatory. They I, I, They were in my class and." I noticed that when they played for the class, physically, they were very tense. And because they were nervous, they were anxious about what reputation they had, what impression they were making. They were worried about their grades because they were going on to the next stage of their careers. It was a very tense time in their life and it was showing up in their body language. And therefore, Bach and Schubert and Brahms and all the great composers couldn't get through to be fully expressed in their playing. So I came home with that problem. And Ross said, I've got an idea. Give them an A in the first class before they've done anything, right? So that opens a door for all of them to walk into an arena of possibility, right? And then we found out that they, they needed one other thing, which was not enough to say everybody gets an A, because then we were pretending that they were all equal, which, of course, they aren't. Some of them more advanced than others. So she came up with this beautiful idea that they should write me a letter describing who they will be by the end of the year. So they would write a letter in September with a date, September. And the, I mean, they, no, they would write it in September, but the date on the letter was May. Of the next year. The letter began Dear Mr. Zander, I got my A because. Then they would write me a letter describing who they had become. Not who they hoped or they intended, but who they had become. In other words, it was already accomplished. No more, I would like to or I intend to or I hope. No, hope didn't come into it. This was a creation, an invention of who they intended to be. And when that letter was completed, and it didn't only always take only one try, they had to usually do one or two tries before they got the idea that they could leap into the future and then look back and say, how did I do this? What happened? When I came into the class, I was faced with 45 A students, which makes me feel great because I'm surrounded by stars. But the beauty is, that they had also transformed their relationship to the learning experience. And it had one of the students wrote, as I come towards the class, I find a spring in my heels and I find a lightness of spirit because I'm walking into an A situation. And the person I teach is the person who they've described in the letter. see, I only take A students. So when I go to a new orchestra, I do the same thing. And I give everybody an A, and everybody feels it. They feel respected, they feel loved, and when I look at them before they play, I look I'm excited to hear what they're going to play, rather than, oh, I hope you can do this. It's difficult. You know, the the body language and the face and the, the way everything we do is visible. And orchestra players are like babies. They pick up everything, you know, everything if they sense a slight sense of sarcasm or any kind of negative vibration, they pick that up and it shows up in the music. So I always tell my conducting students that everything they do from a raised eyebrow uh, has an impact. And once we as teachers and leaders and parents, every young mother knows this, that if they are in a bad mood, their child is gonna cry it's a very simple thing and I remember a lovely conversation I had with uh, just before rehearsal I said to my personnel manager I said gosh I hope it's a good rehearsal and she said well it's entirely up to you <laughs> and of course she was right so I think once we get that everything emanates from the leader but it shows up in the people who are being led once that is understood then the the then rule number six comes into play. Rule number six, you remember from the book, rule number six is the wonderful story of the two, and this is really now essential. I hope everybody's paying attention. Uh, I love this from a wonderful Russian uh, uh, conductor. Um, he told the two prime ministers sitting in a room, and they're having a conversation about affairs of state. The door bursts open. A man comes in in a state of apoplectic upset. upset and the He's shouting and banging his fist, and he completely disrupts the conversation of the two prime ministers. And then the the local prime minister says to him, Peter, Peter, please remember rule number six. Immediately, Peter's restored to calm. He bows, he apologizes, and he walks out of the room. And now they go back to their conversation 20 minutes later. The door bursts open. A woman comes in hysterical, hair flying, mascara running. She's out of control again, shouting and screaming. And again, he says, Maria, please remember rule number six. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. And she bows and she apologizes. She walks out of the room and then they go back to their conversation. And, of course, 20 minutes later, it happens for the third time because it always happens for three times, right? Well, the third time, the visiting prime minister says, my dear colleague, This is extraordinary, he said. I've seen many things in my life, but I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Three people walked into this room out of control. And you just said rule number six, and they were immediately restored to calm. Would you be willing to tell me what rule number six is? Oh yes, said the other prime minister, he said, very simple, rule number six, don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. So the other prime minister said, well, that's a great rule. What may I ask? Are the other rules? And the other fellow says, there aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> now that's, a, that's yeah. a beautiful. Now, the thing about that story, Nat, and this is very important, because you told me in your letter when you wrote to me to, to be here today, you said you, you came across this work or whatever we call it 15 years ago, and it stayed with you. Now, the reason it stayed with you is because it's transformational. That story is a transformational story because the usual posture of the conductor, the conductor's version of rule number six, don't take yourself so goddamn seriously, take me goddamn seriously, right? <laughs> That's the other model. And there's a famous story of on the great Herbert von and got into his limousine after the rehearsal and said to the driver, quick, go, go, hurry, drive, drive, drive. The driver said, very good, so where to? Doesn't matter, they need me everywhere. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, that's the other model. So once you understand, and I have this diagram here, the people who are watching on a pod, podcast can't see it. But this diagram, this is the downward spiral. This is radiating possibility. In the, in the model, of, it's, a, it's literally a downward spiral. And in the downward spiral model, the conductor dominates and is right and is male, <laughs> right? In the other model with the arrows going out in all directions, the, the model of possibility, the power and the influence and the domination of the leader has become diffused and become the power of every person in the orchestra. That's what Jane was feeling in your class. She, she was telling you in her lovely, 13-year-old way. Thank you, Nat, or whatever she called you. Thank you, sir, for being such an effective teacher, because I feel great in your class. And that's the test, is how do they feel? Do they feel enlivened? Do they feel joyful? Is there a lot of laughter? Is there an open-hearted spirit? We The other day, we were rehearsing a Brookner symphony, and a student one of the members of the orchestra came and said, I'm not feeling very well. I think I'll have to leave at the intermission. I said, Well, just play, play for a while. And he came into the rehearsal and said, I'm cured. Well, he was cured because Bruckner's music is very uplifting. And apparently I didn't do anything to stifle his natural love and outgoing nature and his desire to contribute and all the things that draws to art and to music and to human communication. So I think it's, we have to be very, very mindful, very vigilant of the things that pull people down. So any kind of sarcasm or putting uh, negative speaking or even negative gestures, physical gestures, it can have a devastating effect on young people. So if, if nothing else came out of this conversation for the people who were listening, but an awareness of what it means to give an A to people, because it has an effect on everything, everything. Body language, voice, health. You know, there's a lovely thing at the front of this book, which I love, by uh, Christine Northrup, who's a doctor, famous TV doctor, and she said one of the most inspiring, practical, and uplifting books I've ever read. That's very nice endorsement. But then she said something very interesting: the very act of reading it with an open heart and mind will improve your health. Now, just think about that, because what she's saying—it's not the book that she's talking about; it's a way of being, a, an attitude to life. A, A style of leadership that will actually improve the health your health as a leader and the health of the people you're leading well that's a pretty extraordinary thing to be able to say and of course it would be true of all the the best spiritual activities I mean I would think Buddhists would say the same and and as long as you're not making other people wrong for their beliefs, anything that leads to a greater understanding and sense of purpose is going to be valuable. And I think rather than stuffing our children with more and more knowledge and information and facts, if we can give them this a wonderful story that, um, what's his name, the wonderful English, Uh, Speaker You'll you'll remember who I mean He tells the story of a little girl Who's I think she's seven or eight uh, Drawing in a class And, And the teacher said It's time to stop And she said but I haven't finished And he said and the teacher said But it's the end of the lesson you've got to stop And she said but I haven't finished And she sounded so emphatic And the teacher said well what are you drawing She said I'm drawing God The teacher said well Nobody knows what God looks like. Little girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> ben, that's,
0: that's that, is, that is the leaning that's, in. That is the connecting right. with the student there. And it reminds me very much of a story um, that another friend of mine shared with me uh, when she was in her doctoral program and she was working with kindergartners and she comes up to a kid. There's a, there's a, there's, let's just call him Sam. Sam was standing on a book, literally standing on a book. And instead of, and she took a beat and she's like, instead of walking up to Sam and saying, we don't stand on books in this school, that's disrespectful. (laughs) She, she instead asked him, she said, Sam, why are you standing on that book? And Sam looks right at her and eye to eye, uh, shining eyes, shining. And he (laughs) says, because I want to go inside. Oh, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, so often, if you just take that beat. Right um yeah i I was thinking i mean i I was thinking on overdrive this entire conversation so far and um the white paper the white paper being the physical symbol of openness there's it's tabula rasa it's it's a clean slate it's not a form it's not like you know rate my teacher yeah
1: i don't give them right question and answer i just There's only one condition with the, we call it a white sheet. I mean, that's what it's known. The white sheet has only one condition. They have to sign it. And the reason for that, I mean, it's pretty obvious what the reason is. For one thing, I know who it is so I can continue the conversation. Because let's say they ask a question or they make a point and I want to call them up or write them an email or something. I have to know who it is. But there's another reason, which is when they sign their name, they're not likely to be careless or abusive or uh, rude or anything. Not not that I think they would do that. I've never had anybody uh, respond in a negative way, but it's a nice thing. It's a nice process, process and it's a practice. All these things Nat are practices, like one of the great practices that I've developed because in the world of music, and it's true in other worlds too, if you make a mistake, It can be pretty devastating for the person who's made the mistake. For one thing, everybody can hear it. It's not like if you make a mistake in an office or some impersonal thing. You play a mistake on the trumpet and everybody can hear it. So I developed a way of dealing with the mistake because the usual reaction of the conductor is to be angry, like that you make a face, then the person feels even worse. He's becomes even more self, uh, critical and then he's more likely to make another mistake so i say the correct response to a mistake is to say how fascinating and it was by saying, <laughs> how, how fascinating, fascinating like this <laughs> the, right the hands go up <laughs> and and the, there's a lightness of spirit and instead of pulling down mm-hmm. you allow the spirit to go up And then the how fascinating is, ah, what did I do? How did it happen? How can I avoid it in future? So Ah. it has a creative growing aspect, but mostly it's a lightening up. And a lot of the art of possibility is about lightening up. That's absolutely true. We take ourselves too seriously. We take the situation uh, too seriously. There's a beautiful section of the book, which Roz wrote entirely. It's kind of. Lovely to think of her. She's a, she's a very unusual uh, human being. I adore her and respect her beyond belief. She's my wife. But um, she wrote that chapter in Maine on a plot of land that had nothing on it. No no building and no bathroom or anything. And she lived on it for six weeks in a tent and had her computer tied in with a the, with the car battery. So she would boot the computer, and she would write this chapter on rule number six. And then what she discovered there, is, of course it's not that you shouldn't take anything seriously. There are two parts of the human psyche she discovered. One is what she calls the calculating self. That's the self that's on the make, strategizing, trying to get the best of other people, maneuvering, comparing, measuring, success failure all that stuff that's the calculating self and we spend most of our life in that way yeah the voice in the head looking around wondering whether other people are doing better that is the one that one shouldn't take seriously don't take yourself so goddamn seriously there's another part however of the human psyche which is the contributory self and she calls that the central self and she Describes it beautifully as the, the natural tendency of human beings to want to contribute, to want to be part of uh, an inclusive community, of creating something of value. And that self, one actually doesn't have to take seriously because it's, for instance, the mother. I always tell the story of the, the mother who has a child in a burning building. What does the mother do? She runs into the burning building. Right? What gets her into the building is love. It's not courage. It's not fear. It's the love. And so Lao Tse, the Chinese philosopher, has a beautiful thing. He said, Because of deep love, we are courageous. And that's a beautiful illustration of that mantra, which is because of deep love, we become courageous. So if you're fearful of something, don't look for courage, look for love, and the fear will go away. Now, that if we could be that in our own being, in our own way of approaching the world, and people could see us that way, whether it's people in an orchestra or children in a classroom, they would start to discover the central self to guide their own life and give up their obsession with comparisons and measurement and failure and success and, and all of that downward spiral stuff, which causes illness, causes dis-ease. That's why it's called disease.
0: There's a wonderful um, opening. Actually, your, your TED Talk, which is, if, if, if you haven't heard or, or, or seen Ben's TED Talk, uh, it is absolutely brilliant and it's been seen by over gosh 20 25 million people it is just incredible and it opens and i'm thinking about how it opens ben with what you're saying right now which is you you explain so brilliantly the 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 kind of stages of mastery um on the piano and you talk right
1: right? do you want do you want do you want
0: to actually reteach it to all of us
1: (laughs) yeah they're very simple right so everybody who has a seven-year-old child if you have a seven-year-old child And the seven-year-old child plays the piano. You know exactly what I'm saying. It sounds like this. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Lovely, Julia, lovely.
1: Now the eight-year-old who studied now for a whole year and taking lessons sounds like this. Mm-hmm. The nine-year-old having studied for another year and taken lessons sounds like this. Mm-hmm. studied for another year and taken lessons, sounds like this. Unfortunately, that's the point at which they usually give up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the tragedy of the human condition. Right.
1: (laughs) Father, father, they gave up. But if they'd waited one more year, you would have heard this. And here's the secret the seven year old puts an emphasis on every note. Look at my head, you see. The eight year old reduces them and puts an accent on every other note. The nine-year-old puts an emphasis on every four notes. The 10-year-old puts an emphasis on every eight notes. And the 11-year-old puts one impulse on the whole phrase. Now look what's happened to my body.
0: You're on one side.
1: I call that a one-buttock play. one play. And it could be the other buttock.
0: Alternating. Alternating buttocks.
1: (laughs) One-buttock play. And the beauty of that, and of course, it's universal. It's not just in music. And I had a wonderful, true story. Everything I'm telling is a true story. A, A man came, and I was demonstrating this. I love to demonstrate this gradual reduction. And... He wrote me a letter. He was the president of a company in Ohio. And he, he was at my talk and I demonstrated that. And he said, I was so moved. He said, I went back and I transformed my entire company into a one butter company. but The idea of a one butter company. I mean, that's what I mean by transformation. You know, everybody knows what it feels like when it's stuck. Yeah. You know, when you're going like this with your head up and down and so on. Once you understand the length of the phrase, the sense that you're launching a phrase, that there's an arc of sound, that it's pointed A great musician, uh, Fleischer, um, uh, Leon Fleischer, the pianist, he said, classical music is an act of anti-gravity. Now, is that a more beautiful thing you can imagine? Because when I say... Oh, you, you, feel, you feel lifted up, you feel buoyant, you feel joyous, and you're smiling and your eyes are shining. And I suspect that everybody's eyes are shine, shining, whether they're looking or not, because that's what classical music does for us. It lifts it's
0: illuminating. Us. It's illuminating and levitating. And I'm thinking about my favorite my favorite seat in uh, Symphony Hall in Boston, Ben. My favorite location to sit is up in the, uh, it's, it's when you're walking in and I'm looking at the stage and you're in the balcony on the left-hand side because I'm able to look at the pianist's back and now I'll look at his or her butch's
1: <laughs> to watch the
0: weight distribution as they as they become the the bendy, beautiful, you know, just Definitely. Martha Argerich, right? Like she's yes. somebody who I had, oh, the, had the fortune of seeing. She has that. Me,
1: since you asked for, about music, let me give you an example. There's a very, very beautiful piece of music which I love deeply, which is by Gustav Mahler, and it's the Adagietto from from the Fifth Symphony. And it's usually played very, very, very slowly. Uh, And actually turned into a funeral march. But I happen to know that it was intended as a love song that Mahler wrote it to his fiance and sent it without any explanation. And she looked at it, she she was a musician. She could read it like a book. And she said, oh, he loves me. Great. And she went to see him. So now how do you make that happen? So it begins like this with a viola and then a harp. Scented. I mean, how could you resist the love that's in that music? That is incredibly talk about one but to play. beautiful and there's no words that can possibly contain what's in that music the emotion the tenderness the sorrow the yearning the longing the uh, both hopelessness and the hope it's it's just all of human experience in those heavenly intervals and it's our privilege as musicians to bring that out and to share it and give it as a gift to other people who may not have access to that range of emotional life. It's a
0: beautiful thing. Doesn't Mahler, doesn't Mahler say something like a symphony must be like the world, it must contain exactly. everything.
1: Exactly. Encompass everything. We're just about to do, I mean, I'll tell people about it because it's interesting. On the 8th of April is the next Boston Philharmonic concert, and it's the eighth, it's the third symphony of Gustav Mahler, which was the piece about which he said those very words. The symphony has to contain the whole world and it's going to be in symphony hall in boston on the 8th at three o'clock it's a sunday afternoon three o'clock in the afternoon and it's going to be live streamed around the world now this is one of the things one of the many extraordinary things that have come out of the ghastly experience of covid yeah. which is that now we live stream all our concerts because for a while there were no there were no people in the concert hall so we just live streamed it but we've continued to do that last Sunday we had 2,000 people in the hall and I'll tell you something very amazing there there was a silence in that hall that I'd never experienced before COVID for one thing nobody wants to cough in public right so there's no coughing in the concert but also people are so relieved to be back in a real concert hall with live musicians and live music that they're in, they've discovered a new kind of awe which keeps them quiet, not only during the music, but or even in the spaces between the music. You know, when movements end, usually there's a lot of chattering and coughing and no, no, nothing. No, it's absolutely quiet. So anyway, we live stream it. Now it's all over the all over the world. And the first concert of the year, this was the first time we played for 20 months. And we played a Bruckner symphony, which is not very popular. I mean, most people don't know the Bruckner symphonies so and they're not well liked. But 16,000 people have watched that on, on live stream. I and mean, now that's exciting. That's a new audience. So classical music audience is actually growing and growing and growing rather than diminishing, which is what people assume without thinking. I mean, it's just a different, different view. I, I, th- I say you ain't seen nothing yet. We're just getting started, right? but that's a very that's different than hope. You know, hope. Problem with hope is that it's it's not a strong position. Like a, a very overweight person who hopes to be thin, it doesn't doesn't get very far. It's not enough. <laughs> it's, not about, right? it's not about hope. Right. It's about. Persevering and creating something. Like I tell you, love the love this story. I love talking with you because you're so enthusiastic. But during the, during the COVID, my youth orchestra, we couldn't function because they had to function because they, they had to meet on Saturday afternoon, but we couldn't meet and we couldn't make music. So what I did was very lovely. I invited them all to become conductors, by which I meant they could study the score, they could learn about the orchestra, they could learn about interpretation, they could learn about leadership, they could study a great work. We studied the fourth symphony of Gustav Mahler, all online, every Saturday afternoon right the way through COVID. And we put it all into a film. Now they've been reduced to 20 films. It's gonna go into my new websites coming out very shortly. So it'll be available to everybody. So that's number one. But then when we gathered together this year to play again, the piece we did was the, the Mahler Symphony Number no. 4, Gustav Mahler. And they played it as if they were conductors. I mean, now they suddenly had an interest in every instrument, what people were doing, and they were listening in a way that they never did when they were just playing their own part. So like it's- that was a new dimension of experience and expression that had not occurred because we didn't have COVID to teach us that. So every... Every difficult situation—not that one welcomes difficult situations—but I, I think, in a way, we are sometimes we we work too hard to avoid difficulties, rather than saying, "Now, what is there here to to learn?" And and uh, and my father—the classic story that my father told when he was interned during the war—you know, as a German refugee from. Germany in Berlin. He was interned in a a camp as the Japanese were here in America. So he was with 2,000 Jewish refugees, all of whom had suffered. I mean, he lost everything. He lost his mother in Auschwitz. Eight members of his family were killed in the concentration camps. He lost his home, his money, his profession, everything. And now he was with 2000 other people who had lost similar things. So the level of depression uh, and fear was extraordinary. And he looked around that place and he said, my goodness, there are a lot of intelligent people here. We should have a university. And so they started a university in that camp and they had 46 classes a week without a single book or paper or chalk or blackboard or anything. It's just people talking to each other. Now, that is a possibility story. There's no hope in it. It's action. It's seeing a need, seeing an opening, seeing a pathway. And as I mentioned, the pathway, I want to mention Roz's new book, which is, um, which she, she wrote on her own, and is, is deep psychological. For those interested in the human mind and heart, it's a great book, it's called Pathways to Possibility. And she explores from the perspective of a psychotherapist, what is it actually that stops us from being fully effective adults? And that's what the book is about. And I think it's something that we all work on and to greater extent all, or, or, or greater or lesser extent succeed.
0: I look forward to reading her book, Pathways to Possibility, and I am returning to an original concept from the beginning of this conversation, Ben, which is about empowerment, and it's that notion, actually, I I had my own white sheet uh, here, that you mentioned empowerment, and then you also, about a few minutes later, you mentioned the word diffusion, And you held up that chart of leadership, right? And yeah, if you don't mind holding it up again, you had the downward spiral on the one side and then you had this- um, Radiating
1: possibility.
0: Say again, this what?
1: Radiating possibility. Radiating possibility.
0: And I was looking at that from the conductor to um, his or her orchestra. I was wondering about the term diffusion because diffusion to me connotes a weakening over like the more something spreads the more it diffuses and therefore the more in my mind i was thinking the more it weakens which is not the point so i was wondering about like with diffusion if it's something i don't know if this is even coming out but i've got my little my imitation of your chart there but with every member of the orchestra that you that you um in, that you touch as it diffuses they then feel empowered to right. then radiate And it becomes this this quilt, this uh, molecular, you know, diffusion where nothing is weakened. It's all strength. It builds, it builds almost.
1: Well, good. And and I actually don't use the word diffusion because I don't think it's specific enough. I think language has to be used very precisely. And I don't see the value in that word because it's diffuse, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. But I tell you what I do feel uh, about this this way of thinking of, of empowerment. When I conduct an orchestra, let's say I have 62 string players as I did this weekend in the concert, 62 string players. Now each one of them has an enormous amount of physical power to produce a rich, gorgeous, full sound, right? Every one of them, that's 62 times the full expressive power of each of those players. Now, if you imagine joining that all together, and the way I release that power is by making gestures that cause them to push the sound out. So if you take that opening that I've played now already, Every one of the players wants to play as much as they can. So if every gesture I make is one of encouragement, of energy, of direction, of shape, of of just, yeah, mainly of shape and direction. And now the third one, you remember I said the third one, like the third one in the story is always the beginning. And by making these gestures, instead of just going like this, I'm saying more more lift it give everything you have please more, more. and of course everybody responds yeah. so I don't think that is diffusion I think that that is trust because I know it's in them I know the power is there all I have to do is to release it and give them permission to play with all that beauty and that energy and that power and it's a beautiful thing to be doing and the conductor is silent doesn't make a sound
0: the conductor is silent, doesn't make a sound. The trust is there because you write that letter to yourself. The, the, I got the A, I'm writing the letter, not as aspirational or hopeful, but this is who I am. And I am going to, boom, I'm going to release that out of me and be that person.
1: That's a wonderful thing. And one of the students did a wonderful thing because I try to keep a light, humorous uh, atmosphere. One of the students wrote on her A letter that she couldn't wait for her baby to arrive. And I said, oh, Anne. I didn't know you, you were married. Um, you should bring your husband to the class. And she said, oh, I haven't met him yet. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> you know, she understood that what I was inviting them to do was to play a game. This the game of the A. It's all yes. a game. We can either play the game of the downward spiral and compete, and uh, you know, be all into into measurement and control and all those things, or we can say, let's play the game. The game that I now play because I used to play the game of success and failure. That was the game I was brought up in. And the thing that really hit me when I was a child or a young person. We, we played a game at home called, well, it didn't have a name, but it was my father saying to my elder brother at the beginning of each evening meal, what did you do today? That was the question, it's a harmless question. And he, he didn't say, oh, what did you do today? He said, what did you do today? And my brother, taking the cue, would then tell all the important things that he'd done during the day. And he was very intellectual and high powered and, and you know went on to be a major lawyer and so on. Then he would ask my second brother, and he would ask my sister. By the time it came to my turn, I was a nervous wreck because I was comparing myself. Oh my God, I, I didn't do no, I didn't so by the time it came to my turn, I was a nervous wreck. And because I was comparing all the time. And it cost me heavily, it cost me two marriages because I couldn't, I couldn't ever relax and stop worrying and comparing. And it's I- a strain to be around somebody who's constantly complete, competing. So I, I have a new game. I invented a new game. To, once I realized it was a game, I could invent a new one. And the new one is called I am a contribution. That's a different game, right? That means that everything you do is part of the game. So I'd wake up in the morning, remind myself I'm a contribution, and bang off I'd go. You know, <laughs> I am a contribution.
0: That's that is, that is a trend. I love That's that. A trend. That is, that is the opposite of a deficit mentality. It's the opposite of what I don't have. It's what I do have. I have a contribution. I am a contribution. And There's
1: nothing, and you never know. You know, this concert last Sunday was so adorable. One of the violinists, one of our uh, assistant concert masters, has two adorable little Chinese or oh, Japanese, sorry, Japanese daughters, twins. They're six. And they came to the concert. Well, you would think six-year-olds at a concert like that, the place was full of children, but these six year olds, I mean it's a two hour, two and a quarter hour concert and Beethoven and Shostakovich and and they were and I got very involved in them about which dresses they were going to wear. They sent me several dresses, and I chose the ones that I liked. And then they came to see me before the concert, and then they came to see me after the concert. Now, is that relevant to my job as conductor? And not really. <laughs> but but what, a, what an opportunity to make a connection with these two six-year-olds who won't forget that. Uh, they won't ever. forget.
0: And I'm, I'm wondering if we can we can sadly conclude this conversation, but not sadly, because I would love to conclude this conversation with this story about Katrin, because it, it, it it made me think these twin six-year-olds makes me think about this very, very special five-year-old. And we've, we've, we've mentioned Gustav Mahler several times in our conversation. So I'm wondering if you might mind wrapping this conversation up with that story of Katrin. It's
1: it's a very beautiful story. And it's again, the a child belonging to one of our orchestra players. We were doing the Ninth Mahler Symphony, and uh, which is very dark and long and difficult. And so because it's so difficult, I sent a cassette to all the members of the orchestra over the summer because they'd never played a piece as complicated as this. And would they please get to know it? And so she played it on her boombox, she was up in Maine in one of the islands of Maine. And her niece who was five, listened to this piece with her aunt. And uh, the next day she said, Auntie Anne, what is this piece about? Which is a very interesting thing that a five-year-old would say. and uh, Auntie Anne being very resourceful and imaginative told the story about a princess and a prince and an ogre, you know, all the the paraphernalia of the fantasy world and told the story. And then the next day, the little girl said, Auntie Anne, let's listen to the piece again. And then halfway through it, she said, Auntie Anne, what is this piece really about? And then Auntie Anne told her about Mahler and about the suffering of his life and the anti-Semitism and the loss of his four-year-old daughter and the loss of his job and the persecution and all the suffering, but also the tremendous energies he had as a sports person and walking and he, he walked so fast people had to run to keep up with him. And it was just a tremendous personality. And anyway, he told, she told about Mahler. The next day, she said, can we listen to the piece about that man again? Now it had transferred from being a piece about the princess to being a piece about the man. And then she listened to it every day that week. And then Anne gave her this cassette, and she listened to it a hundred times. And then she wrote me a piece, a letter, which I have on my wall in my study next door. All, all these years. She wrote, Ben Zander with the R going the wrong way, like Toys R Us. And then she said, "Thank, thank you for Marla Nine. I loved it, signed, Katrine. And then she persuaded her parents to drive from Northern New York State the top of New York State to Boston for the concert and sat through that concert. So the reason I keep that on my wall is to remind me that the barriers we assume are not necessarily barriers and that's a very useful thing for teachers to remember we keep on saying oh they're too young for that oh it's not possible you know with my youth orchestra i do outrageous programs uh, and when my website comes out people are going to it's very soon now very very soon people are going to be able to hear this orchestra playing 9th, playing Marla six while the second and the, the right of spring and all the most difficult and complicated pieces because I assume they can do it I give them an a and they always measure up
0: and I'm just so grateful for this conversation this this uh, I feel like you've given us an a an a an a and a, and a gold standard a platinum standard to, to really work with um, as we view the world around us and our in our relationship with it as individuals. And if we can give ourselves individually an A, and if we can let the music of life around us illuminate and, and levitate us the way that beautiful classical music uh, does, um, if we can, we can rotate, if we can alternate our buttocks on the, on the whether it's our desk chair or the symbolic or, or in the car um, without it being dangerous uh, move with the music of our lives um, and listen to the children, really listen to them. They're, they're so deeply in touch with their world around us in ways that, that perhaps kind of flake off as we get older. And something that you do, which I view as, as heroic, frankly, is with your work with youth and your work with the Philharmonic, is the, um, you, you help people to maintain that broadened sense of what life is and, and to try to resist that stripping away of our senses as we grow into adulthood and, and, and further, we don't become stilted. We, there's so much life to be loved and, and lived. So.
1: I have, a, I have one last beautiful story, which I never get tired of telling because it made such an impact on me as a, when I first heard it, this is a story. You've probably heard me tell the story, but um, uh, uh, there was a woman whose name oh God, I'll think of it in a moment she uh, survived Auschwitz she went to Auschwitz I think I told the story but she, she went to Auschwitz as a 15 year old and her brother was 8 so these two children became detached from their parents going to Auschwitz in the cattle train going to, to Berlin And I think I've been going to Poland from Berlin, and so she was in charge. The parents had got lost, and so here are these two children surrounded by other Jewish refugees, and it's an awful scene. Whenever I think about it, and then she looks down and sees that her brother has lost one of his shoes, and she says, "Why are you so stupid? You're always losing things. For goodness' sake!" Can't you keep your things together? Which, of course, is a natural thing for a young girl who's in charge to say, and in a tone of voice that was completely understandable. The trouble was, it was the last thing she ever said to him because she never saw him again, because he didn't survive. And so when she came out of Auschwitz, I'll never forget when she, she told me this herself, she said, I made a vow. And the vow was, I will never say anything that couldn't stand as the last thing I ever say. And of course, we can't really do that and we will keep making ourselves wrong, but it is a possibility to live into. And that's how possibility works. It's a possibility to live into. It's not about right thinking and about doing correct things. No, it's just always knowing there's a possibility to live into, which guides us and inspires So thank you for the conversation.
0: Thank you for guiding and inspiring, Ben. So, so thrilled. Ben, BenjaminZander.org um, will, will remain the name of your website. I'm uh, in, a, I'll put it as Chiron in the bottom here of the video feed so people can jump to you, the website because as it is, it is an incredible treasure trove of beautiful audio and video and lessons and spirit. And I can't imagine building on that, but I can't wait for can it I to tell you to see what website. we're
1: doing now, what we're doing to build on it, which is you decided to make me the guide. So you can wander about, but if you want a guided tour, I will be the guide. And that's what we're working on showing people what to listen for and where to go. And so, so people will have a guided tour.
0: Well, <laughs> get, if this, this podcast uh, re- reflects anything, it is that you are an incredibly beautiful and spirited and thoughtful and and just wonderful guide and i cannot wait to, to be guided again by you through the new website and everything you've shared with us in the past hour thank you Ben Zander.
1: dostoevsky said with an intelligent person even conversation is a pleasure <laughs>
0: <laughs> well then that way it's definitely unidirectional <laughs> Great to see you. Great to see see you. you. Yes, keep that in mind. Thank you, Ben.
1: Pleasure. Pleasure. You've been listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Damon. If you'd like to recommend a guest for a future episode, you can send your suggestion or questions to nat at reachacademics.com.